Hey, it's Michael, and welcome to another podcast episode. Before I get into today's episode, we wanted to make an offer to you. If you go to firmsconsulting.com, you will see a pop-up or you'll see a place to add in your email address or you can register on the Firms Consulting website. If you register onto that website, you get put into an exclusive list. And what you get in that exclusive list is samples of the content we have available to FC Insiders. So that said, I hope you enjoy today's episode. Hello, this is Christopher Robo. Welcome to another episode of the Strategy Skills Podcast. Before we start today's interview, I have a free download for you. If you want to strengthen your strategy skills, get the overall approach used in well-managed strategy studies, free download, go to firmsconsulting.com forward slash overall approach. It is firmsconsulting.com forward slash overall approach. And today we have with us Emily Field. Emily is a partner in McKinsey Seattle office. She helps organizations with distributed workforces deliver on their performance goals with the role of the manager front and center. Emily holds a BA in government from Georgetown University. Welcome, Emily. It's so great to have you with us today. Russ, it's great to be here. Emily, so before we dive into very important work you are doing related to middle management, maybe we could talk a little bit about your story, how you ended up at McKinsey, became a partner. I, I know there is an interesting story there. Yeah, I'll try to keep it brief. It feels like a bit of a winding path, but maybe sort of to if we go back in time um, to almost 15 years ago, um, I was a senior at Georgetown University in Washington, D.C. I was a government major, uh, and I was studying history and Spanish as my minors, and I also was interning at an education nonprofit. Um, I was really passionate about the education nonprofit, and also practically, it was the highest paying work-study job I could find, so I grabbed it. Um, and. Uh, through that education nonprofit, I found that education and access and economic mobility was really important to me. Um, and I got to know a great group of folks, right? Then from there, I went on to intern at an education nonprofit consulting firm, right? Sort of taking, you know, connections and learnings from one nonprofit and said, could I expand my impact through consulting? I had no idea what consulting was. And of course it took different shapes and sizes, but this was really around helping nonprofits on their missions and fundraising strategies. Um, and then, you know, I was entering my senior year and people were on campus talking about the career center and interviewing. And I was thinking like, I have no idea what I'm going to be doing when I graduate college but um, everyone else is applying for jobs. I suppose I will too. I started also just talking to folks at this nonprofit consulting firm and saying, hey, like consulting's really interesting. I love serving nonprofits. I love having impact and feeling like I'm making a difference um, and understanding what options are out there. And people started connecting me to their networks and helping me meet people. And so I went through the non I went through the consulting on-campus path of sort of inter applying and interviewing um, and ultimately ended up um, getting a job at a in a management consulting development program. And I um, had no idea what consulting was. I could not explain it. Um, I uh, 
remember just saying, I'd always thought I'd go to law school. Um, I came from a family where people were teachers and, you know, my dad was a cheesemaker and my mom uh, sort of worked side, you know, side jobs to um, around childcare. I didn't have like this exemplar. I didn't know like what, you know, what a great business leader looked like. Um, and I had really no aspirations to be a business leader, to be honest. And so I fell into this by happenstance. And then what I would say, um, I told you this was a little of a long story, but like the other interesting thing too was, so I got to consulting and my very first project was doing a project with a large um, na national um, law enforcement agency. And it was all around leadership development. And I thought, I didn't know that's what consulting was. We were helping develop their future leaders um, to thwart terrorism. What a mission, right? For 22-year-old me. And I was so inspired by it. And what I did is I really took stock of the fact that I loved that, right? I got so much energy from it. I was so excited. And I um, just kept leaning into that. I kept thinking, like, I'm so excited to jump out of bed bright and early to get to do this work. And so I got so incredibly fortunate, right? One, people told me, hey, explore consulting, right? And I did, and I had no idea what it was. Two, my very first project was something that I just absolutely adored. And I just sort of kept on this path, right? Kept connecting with people I liked from whom I learned. Um, and then um, I was working at the time in Germany um, as a consultant and McKinsey reached out to me and um, about, about a role. and. I responded to the LinkedIn message, thought, hey, this might not go anywhere. And I was super excited. Every interaction I had was super energizing. I felt like I was learning so much from the people that were interviewing me uh, that I said, why not uh, make the jump and um, really think about it as a way to learn and grow and challenge myself. Um, and that was about almost six years ago now. And I'd say I still get to learn and challenge myself every day with people that I really like who I learned from. Such an incredible story, Emily. I actually remember also when I was in consulting, I remember working once. Well, it happened, that thought had, I had that thought more than once, but I remember specifically one time I was working from an event and I was thinking, I cannot believe I get paid to do this work because I love it so much. I agree with you. It's an incredible work. It takes, it, it can be tough. But the fact that it gives you energy allows you to do the long hours and so on. So you worked at McKinsey before pandemic, after pandemic. How did it change? How did the experience change for you? Well, I think what, some things stayed the same. And certainly to your point, Chris, some things change, right? The thing that stayed the same is working with really talented teams and on big pressing challenges of organizations, right? Um, so that has remained unchanged. How do we help our clients achieve more than they ever thought possible? How do we help them solve their thorniest people uh, challenges? How do we help them accelerate value through talent, right? So that has remained unchanged. I'd say what has changed, right, is how we do it, right? Physically, um, where you know, for a long time we were in, in our homes, right? Um, and now, and very much remote. Um, now we're saying, hey, when do we come back together in a really purposeful way? Let's not go all the way back to how it was before of, you know, four days a week 
in the office traveling, but how do we say, let's come together for those really key moments that are going to um, have the most impact, um, both for answering the problem we're trying to solve, but also for our own development and for our own ability to collaborate and to be in that flow, right? To be having that fun. Um, it's more fun to be in person a lot of the time um, than it is just to be sort of, you know, staring at each other on Zoom screens. Very true. Certain things you just cannot do via Zoom. Emily, and when you joined McKinsey, I know it was some time back, but do you remember what really surprised you once you joined? Something maybe you did not expect? It's a really good question. I think the thing that surprised me most was getting to just work with incredibly talented people. I knew folks would be really talented, right? But getting to learn so much from my clients, right? Sometimes I joke with my clients like that they teach me more than I teach them. And um, getting to feel sometimes like I'm really apprenticing under my clients, um, getting to observe interactions, to learn, how, you know, whether it's, hey, we're building an entirely new talent acquisition function, right? I've never led a TA function, but I got to build one, right? And I learned so much about that. Or if I'm building, you know, a talent marketplace to help Ukrainian refugees. Wow, I learned so much, right? And so getting to just learn so much every day, um, and specifically from my clients, has just been truly a pleasure. And so I always think, how can I make sure I'm helping my clients as much as I really feel like they're also helping me. I totally understand what you mean. I remember, so when I was in consulting, you, you have to go and, and be on a project in one industry, then in another industry. And then when you start, you don't know anything about the industry other than just very superficial things. And it's incredible to me how fast you can become an expert. And I remember being on calls with very senior people within the industry, within the companies, even government officials related to the industry. And I would know things that they don't know because I'm I, <laughs> a, uh, a straight A student. I had to know everything I can as fast as I can. So totally understand your experience. So exciting. And what what have you found most challenging? I think, to be honest, it's in part because I find everything exciting. How do you prioritize, right? You can't do it all at once. And so really being disciplined about what are the areas where I'm super excited to focus and sticking with those areas um, so that you can go really deep, add value versus sort of spreading yourself super thin um, and doing a little bit everywhere, right? It allows you to add so much focus so much energy and intentionality to how you're spending your time um, so that you can really have the most impact possible. And you bring up such an important topic because for a lot of our listeners, time management is such a crucial concern because we have so much that we need to do, we need to accomplish. We have so many demands on our time. Have you found any, any practical practical things that you can share that people can implement? Yeah, absolutely. I'll tell you actually a bit of a funny story. Um, I was working with a colleague um, and we were trying to just align calendars to get together to huddle on something that was really exciting. 
And it just so happens that this gentleman was sharing his screen. So he said, let me just pull up my calendar so I could see his calendar. And he actually had this time block on Friday afternoon for like three hours. And it said, TT. And I said, what's TT? Because I was like, oh, I could do there. I could do in there. You've got this three hour block. What's TT? And he said, that's thinking time. And I said, what do you mean it's thinking time? And he's like, you know, I spend part of it going for a walk, reflecting on the past week, what, what my, how my teams are doing, how my clients are doing, how we're moving the problems forward, just thinking. Then I spent another part of that time, you know, putting together some thoughts, pen to paper. And then I spent time um, planning for the week ahead. And I was like, what? And he said, yeah, when do you do that? And I said, I often don't, right? Or maybe, you know, Sunday night. Um, and he said, you got to plan it. And this is actually something men are better at this than women, right? Um, not being reactive to your calendar. It's easier said than done, especially in the era of, you know, Zooms where you're scheduled absolutely back to back and you just get a calendar invitation and you just kind of accept it and you don't say, wait, what is this? What is the value I'm contributing? What's the objective? Do I need to be there, right? What's my role in this? Um, and how does it map to my priorities, right? That reactivity. And so I've tried to be much more intentional, right? What's my TT, right? And so thinking about on my, you know, now my Friday after, you know, it's, I won't say I've gotten to the three hours, but actually being able to say, how do I take stock? Um, how do I really plan in an intentional way so that I'm best able to, you know, show up for my clients, show up for my teams, um, and, and prioritize, see around corners, plan ahead. Um, and it allows you to be so much more focused than too on how you're sp spending your time. That is such an incredibly important thing for people to do. And this is when you can see something that if you don't see it, you will lose a lot of time. You can find some very big errors specifically in that time. That's why also when we're in the shower, we get all these important ideas because finally our mind is free and we can space out. We need more of that time. The, the reason it happens in the shower for most people is because we just don't have enough breathing room in our life. So if we had more of the thinking time, it would happen more often. We'll have more opportunities. Do you find that after pandemic time management issue became less of an issue, given that you don't have to travel as much? No, I mean, I think most people, right, we, we replaced our commute with time uh, working, right? So I, I think it's actually a totally different issue in a way, right? Sometimes I challenge folks to say, hey, why don't you, we have this like beautiful history of our time, go back to like February, 2020. What did your calendar look like, right? How did you spend your time? Like it was, you know, I discovered these, I used to have lunch blocks, right? Cause I'd go grab lunch at, you know, at the, at the cafeteria. Whereas now it's like, I run downstairs on a Zoom call, right? And so I think it's almost helpful to go back to your calendar and say, how did I use to spend my time? Now you might say, hey, it's not like a rinse and repeat, but actually what can I take forward? And then I think what's really important too, and this is, I think the most complicated piece is then being intentional about what you're doing where, right? And working with your teams on this. Um, 
So being able to say, hey, as a team, when we come into the office, right, are we actually getting clear on what is the work we're going to do when we're together? So maybe if we are in the office on Tuesdays and Wednesdays, that's going to be for our like big idea generation, collaboration, creative thinking. We're also going to prioritize having our coaching one-to-one um, in person. We're going to have connectivity, team events, whatever, right? Um, and then when we're not in the office the other days, you know, it's not that we're not going to meet, we're not going to hop on Zoom, but we're actually going to really prioritize our heads down time, right? And we're going to crank out our work that's best done asynchronously um, and more focus on the coordination, not collaboration. And so being able to be really intentional about that, right? When we come together and we say, you know, we just put in our headphones and we hop on Zoom, it's like, my goodness, why did I commute an hour plus, right? Why did I, um, why did I come, why, why did we come together? Was that a good use of our time? And the other thing I'd say is, you know, don't wait for your manager to make it a good use of your time. You've got to make it a good use of your time. And so I often tell, ask my teams, um, right, hey, we just came together for a couple of days. Was it, you know, what made it valuable? And what could make it even more valuable, right? We we're, we can be agents on this, right? It's, you know, I realize, right? It's a bit, you know, it's easy to say, right? Especially if it's an edict on high that's saying, hey, come in, you've got to be in Tuesday to Thursday and we're checking badge swipes, right? That's, you know, not the most inspiring thing on the planet. But then we can say, okay, if that's the message, what are we going to do with the time? How are we going to make best use of the time so that we are being more innovative, right? We're driving the results and we're having fun and we're learning while we do it, right? There are diminishing returns to capability building on, you know, when you're virtual, right? Versus being able to say, hey, turn your computer to me. Let's see how we could think about this together. Hey, let's pop over to the whiteboard. There's so many incredible collaboration tools. And, you know, especially when you're working on large global teams, you know, there's such value in hybrid. But being able to say, hey, what's the work we do when we come together, whether that whether that's on a weekly basis or on a monthly or quarterly basis, based on the team structure and um, the ways of working, making best use of time is something we can really be um, great at if we're intentional. Emily, and the last question on kind of a day-to-day -day life before we move on to a very important topic of today. And the question I wanted to ask you is, so many of our listeners are in consulting. So we have many listeners who are managers above executives and so on in large organizations. They never worked in consulting or maybe they worked at the, in the past, but they're currently already outside of consulting. But then for listeners who are in consulting, what do you think makes an outstanding consultant? What are some of the things our listeners who are in consulting and want to build a career in consulting should focus on what should they focus on developing in terms of skills and so on? Yeah. So I'm going to tell you two, and they might feel like surprised. They might feel surprising to you. One is um, not really a skill at all, but actually it's around will. It's on the attitude, right? Actually saying, you know, Am I proactive? Am I hungry? Am I excited, right? Um, to get to be doing what I'm doing? Do I feel like I'm learning, right? We can all tell the difference between someone who's sort of, you know, leaning back and sort of 
one hand on the wheel, you know, sort of letting things happen versus someone who's leaning in, hands on the wheel, 10 and two, and steering their, the ship, right? They're driving the car. And um, I think that attitude, that will, that hunger, right? I don't think it's something that you can teach per se, but I always encourage um, new business analysts and associates who are saying to me, like, what should I do to be successful? Like, keep your awesome attitude, right? Keep your hunger for learning. Keep your, um, keep, keep that drive and willingness um, because it's so important. And then the second thing I would say is build trust, right? Um, when you're in consulting, by definition, organizations are engaging you to solve a problem that they couldn't solve on their own. What that means is it's the hardest challenge. And when I say couldn't, I don't mean they physically can't do it, right? What I mean is maybe they didn't have the capacity, right? Maybe they needed a very specific capability, but only for a dedicated piece of time. So it didn't make sense for them to build it internally, right? Um, and so keeping, building trust, right? You're going to be in the trenches with your clients, working on these really thorny, often fairly ambiguous problems. And we need to be able to really help them um, be successful, right? I always tell my clients, I measure my success based on your success, right? I also view it as my job to put myself out of a job. Um, that requires trust. It requires a very low self-orientation. Um, and it requires us staying the course and being there for our clients um, in the great times and in the challenging times. That's an exceptional answer to this question. And I think it also gives people who have both of those qualities, it gives them confidence that they actually already have everything they need. Yes, there are always going to be things that they will need to learn, but they already have, if they can, if they see clients' best, if, if they care about clients' best interest and they actually have this attitude of wanting to do great work, they already have everything they need and other things they will pick up along the way. Exactly. So I always like to think of it as do something that makes you feel like I get to do this, not I have to do this. And let's be clear, work is work, right? So every day is not going to be rainbows and butterflies, right? I remember when I was a brand new business analyst and I was coming home absolutely exhausted. And my twin sister said to me, you didn't get paid to do this. It's work. Um, and I'd actually forgotten that, which sounds really crazy. And also, let's be clear, exceptionally privileged. Um, but I'd forgotten it because I was so invested in the work I was doing. I cared so much about it that I wasn't thinking about the fact that I literally did need to get paid. I need to make, make rent. I needed to pay my student loans. Like I needed it, but I forgot about that because I liked it so much. And again, that's not going to be true every single day. We don't call work fun. We call it work. But finding the things that you love to do, the things that give you energy, not drain your energy, that's really, that's the magic, right? And that's why I feel so fortunate every day to get to do what I do. And this is the key for our listeners to pay attention to what actually gives you energy. If you're not sure if the role you currently have is a good role for you, 
pay attention to what gives you energy, what gave you energy in the past. It will give you all the information you need to make the next right move. So let's move on. Let's move into this very, very fascinating, important topic. You wrote the entire book on it. So what, what made you so interested in middle management and the importance of middle management layer for organizations? Yeah, so we have to go back in time to about two and a half years ago, right? It takes quite a lot of time to write a book. And we, uh, my co-authors, Bill Shaniger, Brian Hancock, and I um, got together and we were just asking some questions. Hey, what makes a company win or fall short? What makes a company innovate or decline? Um, you know, what makes a transformation succeed or miss the mark? And we just kept coming back, right, based on our 60 plus collective years of experience uh, to managers, managers, managers. Um, and we felt like at the same time, we hear people say, managers are the permafrost layer, right? Nothing, nothing can permeate through. We've got to thaw them. And Managers are the clay layer and, right, there's entire cartoons and, you know, TV shows and movies that just literally mock middle managers. Um, but yet we believe they were so important. And so we said, you know, how do we really empower them, right? Managers are misunderstood. They're not set up for success. And if we want to change the outcomes, we've got to change the system. And that's really how the book was born. And they can see and feel your passion about it. So you're the right spoke, spokesperson for this. And we need to talk about this because they do really play a very crucial part. So if we define middle management as there is at least one manager above you and at least one manager below you, will this be how you will define it? Exactly. Very right good. in the middle. So most people see middle manager role as kind of a stop point on the path to senior leadership. But actually, some people are amazing middle managers. They're very happy with what they're doing, but they either prefer to stay there, they already realize it, or there are situations where they get promoted and then they realize that, oh my God, I used to love my job and now I hate my job. So my question to you, based on your research and work and so on, how can our listeners identify if middle manager role is actually the right fit for them and that they will likely be unhappy at more senior levels? Yeah, right. If What you're describing there is this concept of, we often think of the role of a middle manager as a way station, a necessary evil en route to something better. Uh, but if you think about it, a middle manager role can be a really great place to be. You're still close enough to the day-to-day -day work that you're being able to connect dots. and But you're also seeing enough pieces that you're able to influence above and really connect a bigger picture and effectuate the strategy. I think what's really important, though, is to say, hey, what gives you energy, right? And so we tell a story in the book about an, um, uh, a, a manager who was um, 
his boss left. Um, and so he uh, got promoted into this role of being a metal manager. And he liked his prior job. Um, he was working essentially as like a business development leader. Um, but and he was kind of in the action. And when he got promoted up to middle management, he actually felt like he was away from the people he used to get to coach. He wasn't able to drive change at the scale he wanted. He kind of felt like a bureaucrat, like kind of like he was responsible for putting together the quarterly business reports for everyone. And he just felt a little empty inside, right? Like he didn't get to do the work that he loved. And so what I think is really important about that is to say, you know, one, understand what is the role that you're going into, right? What are the, you know, what are, what do the responsibilities look like? How does it align for our earlier conversation to what gives you energy? Um, and then also importantly too, is the role set up for success, right? Is the role sufficiently empowered? Does it have the right decision-making authorities? Does it have the budget that you need in order to be successful? Um, and making sure too, right? Not all, you know, middle manager is a, or middle management is a big class of roles, right? It's not one size fits all, but being able to say, hey, what are the expectations? Um, and am I excited about it? And what we also encourage organizations to do is to think about what are the different paths, right? How can you make it choose your own adventure? Not everyone has to rise up through this people manager path, right? Some people can choose to go through a knowledge expert path or a program management, not people management path. But the problem is, is when we ask people like, hey, do you want to be a middle, do you want to be a manager? They say, I don't know, or maybe not. But then when you ask them, do you need to be a middle manager to advance, right? And of course, with that said, make more money, they say yes. And so you're caught between, hey, I want to grow. I want to advance. Um, I want to grow in my career with, but maybe I don't actually want to do what's being required of me to do it. And so many changes I needed from the organization side to understand that they need to really pay attention to what gives the employees energy and what they're really good at and kind of move them along that path versus moving them to a forced role that includes responsibilities that are not leveraging the real, um, the best skills that this employee has. But also it requires understanding from manager's side of what is best for them, for their career, and for their opportunity to contribute at a higher level. So if, if after listening to our conversation, some of our listeners identify that they actually want to stay middle managers and they given up on this, uh, they will stop feeling bad that they maybe haven't got promoted because actually once they think about it, they don't want to do their boss's job and certainly don't want to do their boss's job. How should they communicate it to their superiors in a way that reduces chances as much as possible that they will be viewed as insufficiently committed, not serious, basically maybe even dead man walking? Yeah, I mean, I think part of it too is to say it's a very different story if you said, hey, I just want to stay in my job forever doing the exact same thing I'm doing, right? That's one where, okay, that might be the dead man walking. Like, really? Come on. But what if you actually flipped that and said, I think we can have more impact. 
I think we can get to market faster. I think we can develop even better products, right? Depending on the role. Um, and this is how I'm excited to do it, right? These are the improvements I see, right? And I think what's really important is to say, how can middle managers at their best be challengers of status quo, right? Moving from this is how we've always done it to how might we do it differently. I think what's really important is what we argue in the book and what we believe deeply is that, quote, staying in middle management is not stagnation, right? It's actually saying, how do we have more impact? How do we achieve more than we ever thought possible? And how do we create a role that is really, one, well-rewarded for the impact that the role has, and two, really set up for success. Um, and so I also think for folks who say, hey, I really like what I do. Um, am I going to be perceived as, you know, not having ambition if I keep doing that? I would say, lean into what you love to do. Uh, and by leaving the job, right, learn from this lesson in the book of Marcus, who left his job because he felt like the only way was up. He ended up leaving that company because he didn't like um he didn't like that job, you know, pay attention to what gives you energy um, and don't run from a job you like. What do you think are you, what do you think middle managers are uniquely suited to do? Yeah, well, if we think about it, right, middle managers are absolutely critical on actually saying, what's the work that needs to happen? And how's my team going to make it happen, right? So this idea of actually bundling the work to be done and saying, how does it map to my people, right? Their strengths, their capabilities, their capacity, um, as well as their interests. What are they excited to do? That's really important too, particularly, you know, as by 2030, I believe Gen Z is going to be about 25% of the workforce, right? When we know that our Gen Z colleagues care deeply about their work aligning to their purpose and to their own personal mission, and they will leave if it doesn't, then the manager actually has to be this manager of inspiration, right? They've got to help connect the work to be done to the individual's personal goals. And they also have to help the individual understand how their work ladders up. And so there's this piece that, that a manager uniquely suited to do. Who else is going to know what their people care about, if not them? And then on that, right, it's also the manager has a real responsibility to say, how do I serve as a continuous coach to my employees, right? Not the episodic perfunctory performance reviews, but actually saying in the flow of work, how am I giving feedback? How am I developing? How am I growing my team because I care deeply? Here's the problem though, Chris. What I've just described, if we're being honest, very few managers are actually rewarded for those things, right? Um, those things all sound nice. Nobody would say, hey, I don't want to do it. Um, or they might, your listeners might even say, hey, that sounds awesome because that's what gives me energy. But if we're being honest, right, they're often not rewarded for that. What we know is that they're often rewarded for individual contributor work, right? Many managers play the player coach role, right? They've got their own deliverables to drive their own work streams. And then they've also got team members that they need to coach and develop. And what's challenging is, is that in many organizations, people 
say they who are player coaches, I feel like I get really rewarded for my individual contributor work, not my not my people leadership. And so if push comes to shove, I'm going to prioritize my work. How wrong is that? Right. Like that's not the way it's going to be set up. The other piece where we fall short is that managers are just absolutely bogged down by administrative tasks. We did a survey to understand how middle managers spend their time. And about a day a week is spent on administrative tasks, time reports, expenses, right? Headcount approvals. And we're not saying that we don't, as middle managers, need to do some of those tasks, right? We can't get rid of all of them. But how do we streamline? How do we simplify and really get clear on what are those administrative tasks a manager must do? And then automate, delegate, or simply kill the rest of them so that then we can free managers up. And then on the individual contributor work piece, how do we make sure, and we can all do this as managers, is say, are we focused on the right individual contributor work? Um, or if we're being honest, are we focused on doing work that maybe we previously had a direct report doing, but they left during the great resignation and we just took it onto our already full plates because the work had to get done and it often falls on you. Now, the work that middle managers should be doing on an individual contributor front, right? Knitting the different streams together, planning ahead, seeing around corners, right? Um, thinking, thinking about how all the individual con components add up to something bigger. But too often, right, when we talk to managers who are spending about two days a week on individual contributor tasks, it's not the right tasks. And then it's at the sake of, doing the work on strategy and execution, and then importantly, people leadership. Emily, so based on your research, what do you think is the right time allocation for middle managers? Yeah, I wish there was a simple, simple answer, but the reality is, right, it's not one size fits all. What I would say is, right, if we said, okay, here's today, a day a week on admin tasks about, um, I think about a day and a half on individual contributor and the rest is split evenly on um, people leadership and strategy. What I'd say is how can we eke out as much time as possible from the administrative tasks, right? Instead of eight hours a week, could it be like two hours? That'd be ideal. Um, on the individual contributor work, again, right? Today, it's about a day and a half a week. I'd say maybe that's the right answer, right? Especially if you're a player coach, but are you focused on the right work? Um, but then how do you use that time freed up on the administrative side of things? And how do you say, how do I deploy that, right? To really focusing on my people, to focusing on, you know, how my team's gonna execute and how we're gonna drive business value. And of course, as you said, it will be very different for each organization because there are different metrics and focus areas and so on. But it, it is always helpful to know what is best practice and then try to make the adjustments and maybe bring up to the attention of senior leadership that, look, we are spending so much time on administrative work. It's not productive because we can hire people who are more junior in their career to do some of that work. And then I can free up to do more important work and we can improve return on investment and give an opportunity to someone to start a career within our, our organization. 
So you call middle managers impact multipliers, which is such a great description. How can someone become an impact multiplier? So let's say someone listening to us now and they, they are doing a good job. They're trying their best, but they know there's another level for them. What do you think are the kind of what the best middle managers do differently? Yeah, well, so I think you can be an impact multiplier by really spending time with your team, aligning on the problem you're solving up front. I like to think about this as an assembly line. When you kick off a project or maybe an, you know, a new deliverable or build a new product, right? Do you actually spend the time with your team, with your organizational unit, getting really clear? What's the problem we're trying to solve? What's sort of in scope? What's out of scope? What are the parameters we can play within? Who are the key stakeholders? What are the risks? Really get clear up front. And then you can actually say with that clarity, with that alignment, I can empower my team to go off and build it. And so to use the assembly line analogy, right? What if we said, hey, we're building a car. It needs to have you know, four wheels. You know, let, let's make it um, you know, a sports car, have some fun, be innovative. Um, and you can actually then say, hey, let's get really clear on what is it, right? Um, you know, it's for a retiree who's living in the warm weather. Get, what are we building, right? Um, and then you can send your team off to build it. And then you can have interim check-ins along the way and say, I know I said blue, but maybe a different shade of blue, or maybe we could add in this technology or this bell and whistle. But then you get to the end and you're like, bingo, that is exactly what we had aligned on. That's what we needed, right? That perfect blue convertible sports car, whatever. But too often what happens is a manager or bogged down by tons of work just tells the team, go do it, go figure it out, right? And they haven't aligned on what's the problem we're solving. And so then they go off and do it and they get to the end of the assembly line. And it's like, they built a rocket ship, but actually, they needed to not go to space. They needed a scooter, right? Um, they needed to go down the street. And what a waste of time, right? And when I talk to leaders, they talk about months and months wasted by not having that upfront alignment. And that's something the manager can do. And I think what's important too is if it's a really big initiative, right? That's, you know, you could say, hey, that's the responsibility of an executive sponsor, right? Or a leadership team member, okay, then be, a, be an agent, call it out, say, as, as from where you stand, actually say, hey, let's have an alignment meeting. Let's actually really align on what's our problem statement. How are we going to solve it? I think too often, because and you know, no fault to people, right? But we're so bogged down. We have so much going on. We're reactive that we kind of fall into this victim mindset or where we just say, this is happening to us, like, ah, this again, instead of actually saying, we can control how we respond, and we can be an agent, and we can ask the questions and get to clarity, um, because there has to be a better way. Emily, and I feel we cannot talk about this topic without bringing up, without discussing the unique perspective middle managers have that senior leaders don't have because they don't have that contact with 
frontline. You have a great story in your book about oil producer who came to realize the importance of middle managers after a large number of its drillers started quitting. Could you please share that story to bring this point to life? How middle managers have this very unique perspective and why they are so important? Yeah, so this is a story of um, an, an oil and gas company um, with a you know with with oil rigs, and they were losing talent in mass, and they couldn't figure out why. And they tried spot bonuses and all of these things. They were also using tons of data to figure out what were the drivers of leaving. And finally, um, a leader said, "Well, should we just go ask managers? Because they real these leaders cared, right? Like they wanted to solve the attrition. They were losing deeply talented people. It was also hard to attract new people, and so they cared deeply. Um, and they were trying to do the right thing, and they were throwing money at the problem. And so they went to some managers and said, "What's going on, right? What it what would be something that you know? Do you need?" catered meals, events, like, what do you need? Um, and these managers said, honestly, like, it'd be really great to have bigger freezers so we could bring food, right? Think of it, life on the oil rig, right? Far from home, in remote areas, away from creature comforts. It's hard living. It's hard work. And so people missed home-cooked meals. The executives were, like, shocked. They're like, you're saying you want big freezers and people wanted worked to be you know a little little less stressful they wanted the creature comforts of home they wanted their families to be able to send them meals for the week um and so just the act of having freezers actually improved retention and frankly there was no data that told them that. They actually just had to go ask managers. What a cheap solution uh, to a really thorny problem. It, it comes, it really, it just really muscles hierarchy of needs. People in that situation, they, they really need freezers more than they need more money because it just gives them some sense of well-being and comfort. And of course, as humans, we we really I can tell you, I, I loved my home country. Kind of now, I have multiple home countries, but at that time, my home country, a long time ago. And every time I eat food that I used to eat as a child, it's a very special experience, and it gives you a lot of a lot of comfort. So, another question that I feel we have to discuss, uh, topic we have to discuss, is of course the current age of AI and fears of job displacement. And how can managers rebundle jobs instead of eliminating them? Yeah, so if we think about it, the world of work is going to be changing significantly, right? So depending on, you know, you can look at different stats, but I'll throw a few out there, right? Um, by 2030, approximately 85 million jobs are going to be significantly disrupted. Before we get really concerned about that, the great news is that 97 million jobs are being created. So actually more jobs are being created than are going away. On top of that though, jobs are changing, right? So for knowledge workers, approximately 10% of the job of a knowledge worker can be significantly changed or go away completely because of generative AI. 
And so what does that mean? That means it's not just about like wholesale automation of jobs. That's actually, you know, not the norm. It's actually about automation of tasks. And what do we, what are, you know, what are jobs? They're compilations of tasks. And so if you think about it, the manager can be this reimaginer, right? They can be this rebundler and they can actually say, okay, if this is the direction of my group, if this is what we need to accomplish, how do we use technology, right? How do we augment it with humans? How do we deliver? And then what are the, what are the roles I need, right? To complete those tasks? What are the skills I need um, to be able to deliver? And so managers have such a critical role in actually being able to go from enormous potential to reality. Emiliano, we only have a few minutes left. Is there a question that you wish I asked you and I didn't? I think one thing we haven't talked about that I think is so important is, frankly, the state of well-being of managers. Um, right, Managers are more burnt out um, than any other population to the tune of 43% of managers reporting burnout. And so maybe we spend a little time talking about that. Uh, Chris, what do you think? Yes, I think that is a very important topic. And so I think the question, right, I, I led with the assertion of how important it is, because I think it's so, you know, so, uh, so well agreed upon. I think the question is the what do you do, right? If you are feeling burnt out as a leader, as a manager, what do you do? And, you know, the challenge is, is that folks will say, hey, go do this learning or go, go to this retreat. And, hey, that's well-intentioned if your organization is doing that, right? Know that the heart is in a good place, but actually, right, it's really hard to develop and learn if you're running on empty, right? If your cortisol levels are through the roof, if you're exhausted, if you're feeling depleted, you're not in a learning zone. And so I think what's really important is to say, how can I control what I can control, right? Or how can I prioritize, right? Are there things that, if I'm being honest, are on my list, but they're not priorities? So how do I create space? right? That has to be mission one, right? How do I also then two build in moments of recovery, right? Micro recovery, short breaks, a five minute walk break, a brief meditation, a simple deep breathing exercise, right? The breath is actually really important. And it's incredible how when we're stressed out and overwhelmed, we forget to breathe. But I think being able to say, hey, we can, we can't control it all. But we can control, are there things we can deprioritize? And how do I create space? And then what do I do with that space? Do I add more things? Or do I actually say, let me pause, let me regroup, right? Um, you know, and also, right, that I'm describing micro recoveries, but then also saying, hey, how are you planning for the macro recovery, the week off? And then how are you importantly prioritizing that too and saying, how do I set up my team um, to be successful in my absence? Because getting that time off, that macro recovery is also so important because you also cannot be a great manager if you're exhausted. You can't be a great manager if your tank is absolutely depleted. And so saying, how do I sort of re refill my engine so that I can be there for my teams? Critically important. And if 
anyone listening now thinking I cannot afford it, it means you need to do double <laughs> what Emily just mentioned because you really, if you don't, there are so many examples. I see it all the time. You mentioned it today, the burnout, what happens. Sometimes it's even a serious health condition. If we don't listen to our bodies, don't take care of ourselves, it catch up. It, it catches up with us. So I think exactly right. And in the end, right, that time off you're going to need to recover is way longer um, and frankly, way less fun than that, you know, week vacation or building in micro habits and micro recovery periods as you go. And so what I would say, Chris, I love that point of do double, like quite literally, you can't afford not to. And so you can find a way. Exactly. Yes. We are all leaders. That's why we're listening to this. That's why we're doing this work. So you, you will find a way. Just please find a way. Hear, to, hear me, hear Emily here and, and find a way today. Figure out a plan. Don't let it continue. Emily, such a pleasure to have you. I have one, well, we're actually out of time. So let's wrap up because I, I imagine you have very, very busy schedule. If there is one more question, don't hesitate. So... Last question I have is my favorite question to ask when time allows. And it is, over the last few years, what were two, three aha moments, realizations that really changed the way you look either at life or at business, but that really changed something for you? Yeah. So I think one of the most formidable moments for me was at the very beginning of the pandemic, no one wants to go back to March 2020, right? But remember, right, people were losing their jobs in mass, entire industries were shutting down. And I was really hit with this, frankly, traumatic response of remembering what it was like for my parents when they were unemployed and when they lost their job and how I could just vividly imagine. And I was visualizing how parents were going home and having to tell their kids the tough news I heard when I was a young girl of, I lost my job. And I believe so deeply that work is and having agency and autonomy is so important. Um, and so I actually got to, as a result of that moment, my dear husband said to me, stop pouting. What are you going to do about it? Um, and he, and I actually ended up getting to found a talent marketplace that helped people that were losing their jobs connect to, to jobs that were hiring now. And then at the time when the war broke out in Ukraine, we actually stood up the talent marketplace to support people, uh, to support refugees who were relocating and leaving. Um, and the big lesson from this, right, this big aha is you cannot control what's happening, right? And boy, have I tried. But you can control your response. And you can also say, what can I do, right? And it brings me back to being that, you know, education nonprofit work studies student who said, you know, I I can help people. I want to have impact. And so getting to have impact, doing the work you love that makes a difference um, and being an agent, right? Not feeling like it's happening to you, but that you can take control has been, I think, one of my greatest ahas. And I'm very excited to see what I get to do with it next. Such a great aha moment. Hopefully, people listening to this will realize that if something is bothering them, they should just take action. All this energy they are spending on worrying about it, they can be spending on making it better and fixing the problem. Emily, thank you so much. Thank you very much for 
making the time. Thank you for writing this book. Thank you for doing this work. Thank you for being so passionate about it. Where can listeners learn more about you? Anything you want to share? The name of your book is, of course, Power to the Middle. People can find it on Amazon and so on. But anything you would like to share? Yeah, I'm active on LinkedIn. I really enjoy getting to engage and share the latest insights. And yeah, Power to the Middle, Why Managers Hold the Keys to the Future of Work is available wherever books are sold. Great. Thank you very much. Thanks, everyone, again for tuning in. Our guest today, again, has been Emily Field. Check out Emily's new book, Power to the Middle. And if you want to strengthen your strategy skills, get the overall approach used in well-managed strategy studies. Free download. Go to firmsconsulting.com forward slash overall approach. It is F-I-R-M-S consulting.com forward slash overall approach. Take care. And I look forward to connect with you all next time. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed doing the episode. Finally, I want you to remember that the only way to get access to our special offers, the only way to get our special pricing, and the only way to get samples of our content is to join the list on firmsconsulting.com. It's the only way also to get access to our unique advanced content that we make available to insiders. So if you want to get a sneak peek of things, test it out, see what's in there, this is the place to go. And finally, I want to thank you again for making us one of the largest podcast channels around the world for careers and for the 2 million downloads and counting.